to episode 89 of the Retrospectors podcast, Gorky 17. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Sterlings. James, we return to the tactics genre. Uh, we haven't really played anything resembling pure tactics since Panzer General, and even that game was still very much on the strategy side of things, despite this being a genre that we both like. So were you were you excited to play a tactics game for the first time, really, for the show? Honestly... I had no expectations coming into this game. This is like one of the rare cases where Patrick chooses a game that nobody has ever heard of, <laughs> the second being Ecstatica, but that doesn't count because uh, it was a recommendation. So uh, going into this, you know, I didn't have a lot of thoughts, to be honest, um, but I think this is going to make for a pretty fascinating discussion. Part of the problem with most tactics games is that they all seem to be extremely long. Final Fantasy Tactics is a game that we've both wanted to do for a long time because it seems to be a Japanese game that's not a JRPG, but, you know, kind of leans into some of the elements, which seems perfect for me, right? Because it seems like it takes a lot of what I dislike about JRPGs and I guess, changes them uh, while still having some of the of the aesthetic intact. But that game's like 60, 70 hours long, and that just doesn't really easily suit this format of playing a game every fortnight. So one of the great things about this game we found, Gorky 17, is that it's a tactics RPG that can be completed in like 10 hours, maybe even under 10 hours if you're doing well. So it seemed like a, a good option to dive in and play. Yeah, there's not too many of these, so uh, any recommendations on Twitter or in Discord, we'd appreciate that a lot, because it's a genre that I want to do more of. Like, I've always liked the um, the newer XCOM games and stuff like Fire Emblem and Advanced Wars, and, you know, we enjoyed Panzer General, and, you know, turn-based strategy is something that I'm quite into, so, you know, I'm glad we found something. Mm. No, and it turned out to be a pretty interesting game in the end, uh, as most Slav games tend to be. So for those who've never heard of us before, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, we play through classic games of the past to determine whether they've stood the test of time and are worth your time to play today. Critically, we're not a nostalgia podcast. We're not here to reminisce on our memories of these games or try and understand and evaluate these games in the context in which they are made. We just want to know, is this a good game worth your game? time to play today in and amongst all the many modern games that get released all the time at a blistering rate it seems now uh so for gorky 17 i wouldn't be surprised if you haven't heard of this one i only found this one after a recommendation from um from some friends who are big into weird weird games it's a turn-based tactics rpg with survival horror elements it was first released for windows in 1999 it saw late releases for linux and macs but never nintendo switch never xbox never any consoles it's always been a pc title first and foremost which is perhaps one of the reasons it's remained kind of obscure. It was developed by a Polish studio called Metropolis Software, who have made little else that has reviewed well. Um, there are actually a couple of sequels to Gorky 17, although it's more accurate to say they're games set in the Gorky 17 universe, um, but they aren't tactics games. They kind of look like third-person shooters, and to be honest, they look kind of ordinary. So Gorky 17 seems to be the standout title by this studio, uh, which is which is unfortunate because there are so few tactics games out there. It would have been nice if they'd continued developing it. So before we get into the 
to the gameplay and the story and all that good stuff, it's worth mentioning how we played. So we both ended up playing on GOG. Um, the one big notable thing you need to do to get this game running is to change the launch resolutions in the GOG options to 640 by 480. There is an elaborate way to get widescreen working, but honestly, I think the lower resolution works fine. Um, it's kind of a bit zoomed in, but it, it does the job. And the more zoomed in perspective, honestly, adds a little bit of tension to the exploration that might have not been there if it wasn't so zoomed in. Um, did you encounter any technical issues, James? Yeah, so originally I bought this game on Steam because um, you were buying the GOG version. I thought it might be, you know, worth checking that out. And I, it took a lot of effort to get that one running. So I was lazy and I also, you know, ended up using the GOG version. Um, just do that. It's a lot easier. Um, it's about the same. We got it for like $3 Australian each. Super cheap. Um, and, you know, it ran almost perfectly the entire time. There was one notable bug that both Patrick and I encountered, and that is if you leave the game running for an extended period of time, probably like maybe two to three hours or something, um, then at some point uh, the enemies will get stuck during their turns and you won't be able to progress the battles, so you just need to close and reopen the game to fix that. Other than that, I didn't have any major issues with the game. There was like one or two times when I alt-tabbed where it wouldn't tab back into the game, but you know, you kind of expect that with the title was sold. So I encountered that bug exactly once, and because it had happened at kind of like a strange point, I assumed it was a specific kind of scripting bug instead of just a general one. Basically, I just lost control of a character. Like he just moved over to, he'd gone insane and moved over to the enemy team. And so I thought the bug was somehow associated with that transferal of, um, of ownership of the character. It was off to a side path though. So I was just like, okay, well, I guess that path is bugged. I'm just going to keep playing the game and avoid that side path. So in the end, it wasn't critically breaking for me. And in fact, I kind of had a slightly different experience to James because I had a character with me that James did not. So, uh, but as James said, if ever you run into it, just quick restart of the game. I wish I had been able to figure that out. Yeah, if only Patrick had tried turning it off and on again. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I should have. I did. I did try a variety of things but i couldn't find this bug online so obviously my google foo isn't anywhere up to yours james uh so gorky 17 so what i'll do is i'll give a very brief introduction of the plot and then we'll talk a little bit about the story presentation aesthetics and atmosphere so the idea is that gorky 17 actually isn't the town that you're exploring gorking 17 was a russian town that was bombed to crap by the russians and nato and the u.s had suspicions that there were secret experiments going in there and something's gone wrong for the russians to blow up their own town then a similar town in Poland gets discovered, which houses a secret Russian lab. And basically NATO sends a team in to investigate. They send in Team 1. You take control of a small squad of just three NATO soldiers led by typically gruff American Cole Sullivan to investigate the disappearance of Team 1. It's kind of reminiscent of Resident Evil, how you've got a advanced team that's gone in no one knows what's happened to them you're leading team two to try and figure out what's happened to them survive and try and figure out what led to everything going to shit um that's a basic setup you you arrive in this town the game starts with you arriving in the town and then things immediately start to go very very wrong uh james i'll start we'll start with you how did you feel about the story characters 
plot beats of this game were you uh involved with the story do you think it was a tale well told so on the whole i think that the star of the show here is the gameplay um i think that the story is definitely you know second fiddle to the gameplay in gorky 17 i don't have lots of major issues with the plot um i will say that i don't think uh many of the characters are very well fleshed out they're kind of like very one note and one dimensional but i don't necessarily think that detracted from my enjoyment of the game there's lots of little shortcut scenes with conversations in order to set like your goals and that kind of thing and give context to what you're doing it's not a story that's going to blow your mind but i think it was you know around the area of competent it wasn't like inoffensively bad but i didn't love it to be honest i think um there was a few plot revelations near the end that i thought were kind of neat but you know on the whole the story to me is more of a backdrop to the gameplay than anything what i'd say about the story is that the actual plot that you and your characters are going on is competent and fine what feels like is missing here is the context and background lore because shit has gone down in this little polish town you know there are horrific monstrosities coming to attack you and there's a secret evil plot that has caused all these monsters to arise and if you play resident evil or even silent hill there's a lot of uh context surrounding everything that you're doing which kind of adds a depth to the relatively simple story that's kind of lacking as james said there are revelations at the end but they're not carefully seeded throughout so it ends up being a simple and competent story but little else yeah i think the thing that hurts it mostly for me is that i think in the entire game only one of the characters i found to be likable which was Orvitz, um who was kind of like i don't know he's like superstitious and sarcastic and a bit of a joker he was like i always liked when he interjected and had arguments with cole the commander and that was cool and then the other character i do not like the third character i do not remember anything about him whatsoever he didn't say much right yeah yeah it's mainly um the main character um the leader and the you know the joker secondary character who talk uh there is a bit of characterization from one major character right at the end um but i think you know all of the like ingredients are here to have a likable team right like in this game every time you load into a battle there is a very brief bit of chatter between the characters right at the start but they don't do enough of it for me to make all of the characters like likable i'm gonna forget all of these characters within a week basically they're not fleshed out enough none of them have any personal goals or they don't go and undergo any changes and that's you know that's kind of fine this isn't that's not necessarily what the story's going for but i think it would have been better if they had done a bit more with the characterization. It's kind of funny because Colo Sullivan is just like played 100% straight. Like he's gruff military guy, 100% straight from start to finish of the story. And Orvitz is like, so you're right, he is the most interesting character, but even he doesn't change much. And that pitter-patter that they have at the beginning of every encounter like follows exactly the same f format every single fight. It's Orvitz going, ah, monsters. And then Colo Sullivan goes, it's all right, team, stay together, stay focused, don't shoot each other every single time. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think... That inclusion of the chatter before the battle is a really smart idea, and it gives you so much room to add characterization to the game. And 
I think it was massively underutilized, where like to me it's like the perfect place to put that kind of thing, because if you put it right at the start of the battle, it feels less disruptive to the gameplay Ooh. than if you're stopping and starting for cutscenes every 10 seconds, which I think a lot of RPGs can do that. Doing it that way is a lot smoother and a lot less irritating, because you know, even if you don't care about the chatter, you kind of still want to take a couple seconds at the start of the battle to, you know, look at the layout anyway, so you're not really losing time there. So uh, I guess I was a bit disappointed it wasn't done better. Well, one of the things I'd heard about going into this game is that the voice acting was atrocious. How, how did you find the voice acting, James? It was very, like, stereotypical, I guess. Like, you're right, Cole is big, gruff military man. Orvitz is jokey Polish guy. The the other characters talk in their accents. I, um, it wasn't quite typing of the dead bad, um, <laughs> but, it, but I, it didn't stand out to me very much. I found it medium. I don't even think it was, like, Resident Evil bad. It was just, like, very unremarkable. And the production was pretty shoddy as well. The, a lot of the time the characters' voice lines got cut off at the end of their sentences. I don't know if that's something you noticed. But there, I guess the word I'd use to describe it is amateurish. There is a a degree of effort put into having these characters be consistent. It's just not been super well produced and it's not obviously been, it's not like a very refined script. Um, I thought it was fine and I think that the criticism saying it's the worst thing ever overblown it it does the job uh but that's about all i'd say for it just completely average honestly um i think there were times when i enjoyed stuff that the characters were saying i think near the end of the game there's a there's a lot of exposition right at the end and i actually ended up enjoying that quite a bit um because there was more story there than was in the rest of the game and it was kind of like you know, this is your reward for beating the game. Um, and I thought some of the ideas presented there were kind of interesting. Mm. I do think that the narrative does a good job of subverting your expectations to how the plot's going to go in one particular way. I think when you first get into the game, you have a pretty like solid understanding of what you think has happened in the town. And then right at the end, it's not quite what you thought to begin with. And I thought it did a good job of um, setting my expectations wrongly and then subverting them without feeling too forced. Like there was like a tiny bit of foreshadowing right at the end before the revelations, which I thought made it work. But I do think that the first half, maybe more of the game had no foreshadowing for any of mm. this. So it does still feel a little out of left wing, even though they tried the minimum amount, if you know what I mean. But I do think the twist at the end is enjoyable enough uh, it's not like the best thing ever but it did make me like the story a little bit more let's um let's move a bit more to the aspect of the presentation which i think is maybe more well done and that's in the yep. atmosphere presentation aesthetics of this game because i have to say james i loved this this polish town and i think that the presentation and graphics here are simply beautiful i loved the look of this game and it's made me realize like the game is presented in an isometric fashion as you're moving around the town and occasionally you'll go inside locations and kind of get a almost a point and click uh, uh, side-on view of a of a indoors environment, and I've realized the thing that I really like about this graphical style is the lack of reused assets. 
in in modern 3D titles, what they'll do is they'll have lots of reused assets, whether it's walls or boxes or whatever the hell it is. The nature of an isometric game, like Disco Elysium or whatever it is, is that everything is hand-drawn. And these hand-drawn environments are beautifully detailed and, you know, look look incredible to my to my mind i don't know if you're as high as i am on this james but apart from the uh, loot boxes which was a reused asset which stuck out like a sore thumb um i thought i thought this game looked really really good it in spite of the 640 by 480 resolution yeah i will say like i think the technical limitations here are a bit like it's not as cut and dry as it looks old like that's a big negative because i think you know obviously in a game you have to play at that smaller resolution and i was playing on a 2k monitor so it was horribly stretched out and pixelated in a lot of ways um but for like a horror title, I think there's something to be said for obscuring detail, mm. like adding to the tension and atmosphere. Like, I don't think it's as simple to say that, you know, the re low resolution textures and models actively detract from the game. I think there was some, some added back to it. However, you know, to me, it's like all the art direction is fantastic and then it still looks very dated and I think it was a small studio so it probably, you know, comes off as a bit amateurish even then. But like I agree with you, the hand-drawn backgrounds are all fantastic. Uh, I think if I played at the native resolution with a smaller monitor... Uh, not in full screen, uh, they would have looked gorgeous. Um, I love how detailed there are, like you said. all Every single one of the locations really stands out in my mind. Um, it's awesome. I had a look at the, the concept art for the enemy designs too yesterday, and I linked some of the pictures in the Discord. And I also think that the art direction's competence extends to the enemy design as well. Now, I don't think that they did a fantastic job of translating what is some really awesome concept art to their in-game models, but I do think that there was a real variety in the enemy visually, and, you know, they all have this cohesive... Uh, horrifying theme to them that I think worked really well in the game. From probably the second enemy you see in this game, you start getting blown away by the creativity of these enemy designs. It's not simply zombie or, you know, color-shifted zombie. There's guys with cement cinder blocks for arms. There's guys with, you know, uh, saw blades for heads with mouths in their chests. It's this weird blend of almost cosmic horror with mechanical horror. It's like as, as if these... Mut mutated enemies have somehow combined with different industrial pieces of equipment to create the monstrosities in front of you and the game just keeps coming up with new kinds of enemies over the over the entire campaign it really doesn't slow down and sink into repetition at any stage whatsoever so while i you're right james the as much as i love the hand-drawn backgrounds the models are definitely a bit more shoddy in terms of um in terms of their resolution and presentation, but the creativity on display here <laughs> makes it barely even matter because you're so entranced by each and every new enemy design that you encounter. Yeah, when looking at the concept art, to me the thing that stood out in my mind is that it was reminiscent of like, it was like H.R. Geiger without the sexual stuff, I'd say. Like, they're all covered in metal and bits that are like grafted onto their faces and things like that. I don't think the style translates that well to the models, but because the direction is so strong on paper, like, everything Patrick said is true. Like, in-game, they look awesome still. 
even though they're a bit low res. Um, in terms of like setting atmosphere, which is obviously super important for a survival horror game, I think one creative decision was really good, which is that your camera is kind of fixed to your character and you can move it like a tiny bit, like a centimeter um, away from your camera and then it snaps back. And this kind of adds a lot of tension because you, you can't like look around the map. Um, you have to like physically move about and there could be monsters hiding in the dark. So, you know, to me that along with the hand-drawn backgrounds in what is, you know, some really small but dense play spaces adds up to a pretty, you know, tense experience along with the, you know, the atmospheric music and the, the plot that's going on and the uncertainty. One of the biggest things for me, and this might seem like a small thing, but for me, it dramatically added to the immersion is that the way the game works is you kind of move around this isometric map. And when you reach a certain point, you kind of get sucked into, um, into an encounter. It's not a random encounter. There are specific areas where you get into specific encounters. And once you've done them, they're cleared. That encounter that you get sucked into is on the isometric map. It's a zoomed in part of the isometric map. So as you're moving around the isometric map, you'll reach a bit that has, you know, an old phone booth, a couple of barrels that, you know, that you're just walking towards. Boom, when you get into the encounter, you're now on a tactical map and there's the phone booth and there are those two barrels. There's the shop over there that you could see on, on your window. So every time you get into a fight, it's not an abstracted version of the fight like you might see in like Final Fantasy Tactics. It's literally a zoomed in version of the map you're on. And while that's a, that seems like a little thing, it does really feel like the tactical fights and the isometric um viewpoint are intrinsically linked and it does a lot to make you feel like you're actually in this place yeah i agree with that i noticed that as well actually and was going to bring it up um i thought they did a really good job of that um you can almost there is like this degree because you can't see monsters on the map but if you see an area that looks like it has like strategically placed boxes <laughs> for example you can kind of like maybe guess that there's probably an encounter there like i couldn't do it all the time but there was places where i looked and i was like that's a hundred percent a place a fight will happen um but you know that's part of the game right and i kind of like that so overall on top of the surprise ambushes the fixed camera the dimly lit environments with very limited movement space atmosphere wise they did a really good job with this game yeah it is interesting it, it's a very simplistic story which is hard to avoid given how short the game is but they do a great job capturing a sense of place and i think the creativity is of the enemy designs goes a long way to you know uh bring this game to life James, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this game's structure. Um, so we've already touched on it when we were talking on the graphics. It's an isometric game, and then there are tactical encounters that you get sucked into, non-random ones. Um, the way this game plays from a big picture perspective is you move around the map, you get into fights, you defeat the fights, and then you move on. And you keep doing this uh, until you've reached usually something that's effectively a key door. Um, you find the key for that key door, and then you move move on to the next big map. Um, after you clear each encounter, there's usually a box with loot rewards inside, so you're constantly getting resupplied along the way, and uh, cutscenes will trigger, which will develop the next bit of story. 
it's mostly a linear game with some small side paths with optional rewards but for the most part you're not you know you don't have branching paths to go to you're just kind of moving along getting into the preset encounters and probably like 80 percent if not a little bit higher of these encounters are mandatory for you to go through to get to the end of the game. So on a structural level, it's actually very simple. You move around this isometric view, get into all the fights that you have to get into and try and survive. The structure is fairly uh, fairly simple on the base of it. So James, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll talk about a few of the meta elements, broad structural elements that I guess, uh, consistent across the entire campaign. And then we'll get into the more nitty gritty of how the tactics work, because these two things are heavily interlinked. Like it's hard to talk about one without talking about the other, but there are a lot of specific aspects to the tactics system that I think are worth delving into later. I think the first thing to really jump into is when I described this game, I said it's a turn-based tactics RPG with survival horror elements. And while part of that is the atmosphere and presentation, I'd say the far more important part, the far the thing that I really associate with the survival horror genre is resource management. How did you find the resource management in this game, James? Did you enjoy it? Did you think it was a critical part of the experience? And did your understanding of it change as you played through the entire game yeah so i'd say that the resource management aspect of gorky 17 is probably the most important part gameplay wise to the entire thing it kind of plays a central role in everything that you do and like almost every decision that you make because you start this game with not a lot right like you have uh each character has like a knife a handgun with like five bullets um and a couple of healing items and you quickly realize after the first after the first battle that you are going to run out of resources if you're not careful at the beginning of the game it feels like you do not have enough ammo um, if you, you know, use a bullet every single turn. So you kind of want to really try and like ration out your bullets during the battle. And this kind of feeds back into the overworld exploration where you are constantly hunting for new supplies from chests, um, which, you know, contain a variety of items, different guns, uh, different, you know, utility weapons, different healing items and consumables. So I think that basically everything you do is colored by this system. Like my decisions in battle were all about resource efficiency. My decisions in the overworld were all about how can I find another chest. And I think that the game does a pretty good job of balancing this on the whole. Although for me personally, as the game went on, I found it easier and easier to have an excess of items. To me, a lot of the tension in the game was created by this fear of running out of resources and I think that when it starts to fall off maybe after the first hour or two for me at least um, a lot of the tension was lost here which was a bit of a shame but it's difficult to balance limited resources with a variety of player skill especially when you don't have different difficulty settings which the game doesn't so on the whole pretty positive on the system though. I really want to hone in on that for those first couple of hours, James, because for me, it probably took me three or four restarts from scratch before I kind of was comfortable with the with the pacing of this game because I ran out of healing items. I was running out of ammo. Uh, I was really struggling the, the, when I started playing. I was like, holy crap, this game is hard. 
but I eventually came upon a strategy that was pretty effective for me and I'd be interested to find if you settled on the same strategy. So what I did was I gave all of the rifle bullets to one of my characters. I gave all of the pistol bullets to the second character and then I had the third character as a melee specialist. And in addition to that, I tried to, you know, not use my ammo too wildly. So use melee attacks whenever I thought I could reach a good balance of not taking much damage. Did, did you do the same thing as me or did you have your weapons more spread out between your team? Um, So I did a mix of both actually, depending on what weapons they were. So for example, the shotgun um, I left on one person always because in this game as you use a weapon the character gets better with that weapon so it's more like over time it becomes more efficient to have the one character use the same gun mm -hmm. um and we'll talk a bit more about that in detail later but there were some weapons like the rifle which could shoot in eight directions that were just too valuable tactically to only have on one person and you got enough ammo for it that you could spread it between three people um, but I did kind of settle into having roles for certain people, and I guess most of my playthrough was colorized by the idea that melee attacks don't consume resources. So if I could, I would always attack with a melee weapon um, instead of a gun. So a lot of the strategy to me starts becoming about like kiting damage avoidance and getting in to do safe damage to save ammo and i think the game gives you lots of tools to accomplish this um which i thought was pretty cool it is interesting that you say that this resource management colors the entire system entire playthrough because for me that really wasn't the case i'd say that for the first maybe third of my playthrough it dramatically impacted how i played but after that point there was a point i don't know i think it was a little bit past the sewers when I started to get more and more resources that I realized that what the game wanted me to do was to freely use my resources and it was giving me more resources than I could possibly use in the chests, every single chest I opened. Like as my resource pool became wider, it became less important to preserve the smaller pool of resources I have. Because even if I say expended my pistol ammo, well, I still had an Uzi or I still had grenades. There were still useful actions I could make and there were still effective actions to take. So I feel like this resource management thing kind of lost its bite a little bit too early for me, but it did make those initial encounters very tense and very interesting um, juggling all those options. See, I agree with what you're saying. Like, it does lose its bite really hard. Um, however, I honestly, like, the tactical battles I didn't find difficult enough if I played with all my ammo constantly. So in order to make the game, I guess, a bit more engaging for myself, and I kind of, like, I think I just would have done this without thinking about it because it was more fun. Mm -hmm. I really find the idea of uh, resource conservation and efficiency to be very enjoyable from a gameplay point of view. So even though I wasn't actually starved on resources come mid-game, um, I found it more fun to play the battles trying to use like as little as possible anyway. So with that in mind, there were a few battles where I was able to use no ammo and take no damage. Um, especially mm. early mid-game when you get a few more tools. And to me, it, it kind of made the battles into a little puzzle 
Because what, what I was doing kind of was like I would do a battle and then if I fucked up majorly I would just... Because you can save after, you know, every battle. I just do the battle again. And it was almost like retrying a puzzle to see how I could do it without losing. And then uh. solving the puzzle that way was more fun for me. Yeah, see, see, I'm the opposite. So I, I used to play games like this, you know, I used to be a hoarder. But I kind of, over time, have loosened up on it a lot. And I'm enjoying these games a lot more as a result. If I get a cool mm. item, I just use it. So when I got my Molotovs, I was using my Molotovs. Stun grenades, I can hit two enemies with my stun grenade sure yep. let, let's use it so i was using items left right and center and i think that the loot progression that they make available to you actually heavily encourages you to do so so a lot of the fun i got from the game wasn't playing perfectly it was i guess juggling between which tool was going to be the most efficient in a specific situation because by the end of the game you have so many different tools at your disposal yep. and i i did enjoy having all these cool options that i got to play around with yeah don't get me wrong i used all of the tools a lot like there was definitely situations where like there was lots of battles especially later on where i was like okay i have to use this resource here and here to avoid damage and you know the like i used the napalm launcher a lot to make you know zones the enemy didn't want to walk into and you know items to, to kite with i used all of the tools the game gave me a lot throughout the game with the exception of maybe the rocket launcher at the end which i was kind of saving in case there was something really difficult mm. but i did engage with all the systems i just had this really strong focus on you know being efficient with all my actions which to me was really fun and you know you obviously don't have to play it that way and i think it's a i, I think it's an absolute strength of the game that you can basically pick your playstyle in this way. But I was a bit disappointed at how much ammo you get, actually. One of the big reasons you have to play a lot more conservatively in the early games is that healing items are kind of like at a premium. There's far less of them. But once you get into the mid-game, it starts dumping powerful healing items at you left, right, and center. Like, every single chest seems to have multiple healing items in it. There's one in particular that has, like, six 80 hp healing items and you're like what <laughs> like where has this come from and because of that i felt less pressure to play optimally like you did james i was like oh i can just play around with these tools and i've got plenty of healing items so taking damage is less of a big deal than it was in the early game and yeah it does come at a cost it comes at the cost of tension but it seems like you still managed to uh find a way to have fun uh but yeah i, I just i guess took the less perfect route through the levels because i didn't really see the reason to to try and play through these levels taking no damage and i didn't manage to do it all those like there's lots of times where i took damage um there was a few there was only like yeah i'd say the minority of the ones where i was able to do it like feeling really satisfied with the way i played it but um you know i i think the resource management adds a lot to the game's tension especially at the start i think you factor it into your gameplay decisions quite a bit um, I think it makes exploring the overworld fun just because the game, there's a lot of tools in this game um, that maybe you don't expect to get access to and finding them is always a real joy. So mm -hmm. I think the overworld exploration becomes a lot more enjoyable because of all the chests everywhere. Like it's always so cathartic to open one of these. It's always meaningful, Get a whole right? bunch of stuff. Yes. It's, it's never like this improves resistance by this much. It's always like, oh, a grenade. Man, I haven't had a grenade before. Oh, a trank gun. This improves my ability to do CC. And most of the chests give you something pretty damn cool. I just wish it was a bit stingier. 
because the consequence of making resources so free is that you lose that tension. And I think that if instead of giving you like four grenades, if it gave you one or two, you would treasure those resources even more. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things in this game that factor into making the resources a bit more abundant than I want them to be. So the first of these is... So during the overworld, there are often these light puzzle solving things you can do to get extra chests. There's maybe, I don't know, like three, four, five of these in the whole game, not too many. Um, but there's one in particular right at the start, which I think is probably a balance mistake, which is right at the beginning of the game, there is this safe in a guard tower that you can find, mm -hmm. um, and it's locked and you need to find the code to it. And if you find the code to it, you get a, a taser, a hand taser. Now, the taser has no ammo, it's got unlimited uses, and in combat, it functions as a three-turn stun, and if you have two of them, it's 100% uptime on one enemy. Now, the taser and stun items in general are key to saving resources, because every time you stun an enemy, you can have your entire party group up on that one enemy and punch them to death with, you know, or dagger them to death, whatever you want to do, uh, without using any bullets and no risk of retaliation. And oftentimes in battles, you can kind of lure enemies one by one over to you and then just like systematically stun them, beat them up, and then repeat until the battle's over, which, you know, lets you get through battles without damage or using ammo. And I think that it's okay to have this taser in the game. I think it's a bit of a mistake to make it missable early because the difference between having it and not having it is so gigantic in terms of the resources you can't, you like, you save. Mm. Um, I think that the game has to be, be like, as it is, the early game has to be balanced around some players not finding this. And I think that that specifically is what causes the economy to kind of break apart as early as it does. Um, so I would have liked this just to be in a chest that anyone can get, to be honest. You do get a second one later. But then you just have two. <laughs> then it's like even more powerful. Yeah, the impact that this has on the economy balance is gigantic, I think. Um, so I, I really wish this wasn't in a puzzle and you just got it. It's kind of it's kind of a bit like into the breach. That's that's what this game started to remind me of in some ways, where crowd control is the most powerful thing you can do. And into the breach has yep. some crowd control abilities where you can encase enemies in ice and things like that. And being able to do that is just always stronger than killing the enemy because you're you're basically dealing with them you know for for a length of time without consuming resources so yeah i think you raise a really good point james if you put these crowd control things as secrets and then don't balance around it if you're making good use of the crowd control abilities you end up saving shitloads of resources yeah it's like the best way to save resources by like so much is this these tasers um and you get access to these like short range stun guns as well, like these tank dart guns, mm -hmm. uh, those are also extremely powerful. You do get those as well as the taser, um, but I'm like more happy to spend trank bullets than you know this infinite stun thing, <laughs> which I uh, I think breaks the balance a little. It is interesting. So I actually missed uh, some of this stuff. Like uh, James talked about the napalm rifle. I also missed the shotgun. Um, not because they were like incredibly difficult puzzles to solve, but because I saw them, I'm like, oh, I'll come back to these later. 
And then when I wanted to come back to them later, the game would not let me progress. The game does this fucking stupid thing where when you move into the next level, you cannot return to the previous screen. This is an isometric game where once you move to the next area, you are locked off from returning. And I could not for the life of me fathom why that was the case. So I actually missed out on a couple of powerful items that would have helped me a lot. But in the end, it didn't matter too much because one of the items I did get was the was the taser. I did manage to unlock that safe. So that 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 was probably the critical one for me to get to to make my early and mid game uh, far more reasonable. Uh, the napalm launcher is so good too because it um, not only does it set things on fire, it leaves like a three by three square of fire on the ground for like five times oh that enemies. Yeah, they walk through, they instantly get set on fire. That's like, 100% chance, and they generally avoid it too. Because I found the ammo for it, I found the ammo for the shotgun, and I kept expecting one of these weapons to show up at some stage. Except maybe the shotgun, because nope. I had seen it, but I thought there might be a second one. But nope, if you miss it, that's it, you don't get it. Yeah, and this is why I think they have to balance the economy for this happening, right? Don't have don't have secret weapons is the answer. Like I just make them. It's fun though, right? Like finding these things is really enjoyable. Like every time I found one, I was so excited to get to use it. Yeah, I guess. But if 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 it breaks the balance, has it actually you know led to a more enjoyable experience overall? Like in the short term, yes, because you get to feel powerful. But I think in terms of like long term game design, it's better to have a more well regulated balance level. I think the real solution is just to have difficulty options this game doesn't at all yeah that's true there is a mod that actually makes the game harder there are people who say this game are too hard but i think those people have only played for an hour or two i think that once you kind of move past the mid game the game gets dramatically easier and i think that it's basically because of everything we've been saying you by that time you understand the nuances of the tactic system and the resource management is just a non-issue it's also, I think it's a bit snowball-y difficulty-wise. Like, if you're not a strong tactics player, like, every time you use a bit too much ammo and it's going to compound over time, right? Like, you're going to run out. But if you generally make good decisions, that's going to compound over time and you're going to... Yeah, like that's the game's true. It's going to get easier and easier. So it's it's really hard, I think, for them to hit the balance. And I think that this where they landed where late game you do get a lot of stuff is probably the right way to do it to avoid lots of players breaking their save uh just have players break their save they, they'll learn they'll, they'll learn, learn one way or another well they will they'll you never know? play the game again well that's fine i mean honestly i think i think uh, i don't think that's what you want i i think that you know people just need to you know if you're not coming into this game with the understanding that you need to conserve your resources and then you use them wildly and you can't progress that's your own damn fault like honestly mm. get stuffed that <laughs> so that's how they should be designing the game yeah a little bit <laughs> maybe um, that's but, too unsympathetic but but overall would you say you enjoyed this structure i like i said i think that i enjoy it more in theory than i did in practice i mm. what what i ended up enjoying more about this structure was that i had a bunch of fun tools to use and i loved getting new weapons i loved trying new things on the battlefield it felt like i had a different tactical options every time i found something i think yeah. that it would have been even better 
if there was also the bigger restriction on resources. If, it, like I said, if instead of giving me four stun grenades, if it gave me one or two, I would still have those options at my disposal, but I'd have to be far more particular about using them. As it was, I was kind of like just free rolling all of my options all the time. And I think that if they had more heavily restricted the resources we would have had an even better version of what this game offers in the end it was really mainly running off the novelty into the mid to late game which is fine but if it was novelty plus restriction to me that's just a better version of what we we already have what do you mean when you say novelty when I say novelty, what I mean is that the the joys of discovering something new and the um mm. and having to rethink how to implement that new tool. Like for example, when you find the um the ion rifle, it's like, huh, how does this thing work? And then getting it out and using it in a few fights. Um mm. when you find a Molotov or a stun grenade or when I found the flamethrower for the first time and understanding how it used. Just the very fact that you have a new tool in your disposal, it's kind of like, we'll get into the RPG aspects of this game in a minute, but this game has a very light RPG system, but the game is kind of supplemented with tactical depth in terms of you having lots of different possible weapons and grenades and stuff to use at any one time. Mm. And the basically the depth of the options leads to um leads to a tactical depth where you're trying to optimize what it is you're going to do by thinking okay this character has three reasonable tactical options for them for them to do instead of like in fallout where it was always move and shoot mm -hmm. so i think that's the strength of the system in the mid to late game not i have this one grenade that i deliberately didn't use in the previous fight but I can hit two enemies at once. Should I use this grenade? You know, this valuable grenade I have. And it's like, yeah, it's probably worth doing, but then I won't have that grenade in the future. Instead, it's I have four grenades, so why wouldn't I use this grenade? To me, that tension is awesome, and it, like, feeds back into the overworld exploration. Like, early on, like you said, I just, I wanted to find, like, literally every chest I could, and it made hunting around, like, really engaging for me. Even though I wasn't using my resources on the overworld, the act of exploring felt really good because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, James, we've been going for a while now. What about a music break? Uh, what did you think of the music of Gorky 17? Yeah, sounds good. So I thought it was pretty good on the whole, actually. Um, I think Patrick's going to say he loves this soundtrack because like 90% of it is just ambient noise and synth. <laughs> um, and then we were looking at the OST earlier and we realized there's actually like a lot of battle tracks. There's like six, like there's three for your turns during battle. And then during the enemy turns, they have their own theme of which there are three also. So I thought they did a really good job of varying things up. Uh, there wasn't too much variety in terms of like tone and atmosphere. The battle tracks were a lot more, you know, up, not upbeat, but higher tempo than, you know, when you're just crawling around the museum with the creepy background synths. But I think that's absolutely spot on for this genre. And I think that on the whole, it's pretty great. I, like, I really enjoyed the soundtrack. Um, James is correct. I did really love this OST. Uh, it's interesting. It is a bit of a departure from our usual love of ambient droning. It's more just like general ambience. Uh, I think one of the really cool things is you move through about six different environments as you move through the game, six different, you know, illustrated areas like the docks, the museum and everything. 
And each of those does have an ambient soundtrack that I think reflects the environment you're in. Like the docks has a bit more of um, industrial kind of ambient noise, but it's still very quiet. You know, obviously there's there's not many much sign of human life around here. The the town looks abound, abandoned and decrepit, like uh like it's become a ghost town effectively. My favorite track of all of these, which is the one we'll play, is definitely the museum theme because it's kind of got like a very eerie echo kind of theme to it a deserted museum always has always felt haunted to me and it's very much captures the feeling of a haunted museum the museum was my favorite area in the entire game like if you want detail in in an isometric game this museum is just absolutely gorgeous with its detail uh as you move between the exhibits and like head up into the observatory that sits on top of it it's just it's just a beautiful environment and the soundtrack goes a long way towards helping immerse you in that atmosphere so yep absolutely loved the music in this game this is the museum track that was the museum track i agree if i was going to choose one of the songs from the overworld that one would be it 
Um, I'll choose one of the battle themes later on to give us a bit of contrast, but you know, in general, I think that all the songs are excellent, and I think that they do a really good job of like mixing them up over the course of the game, so you never hear the same one too much, um, which could lead to a loss of tension or annoyance at the repetition. So good job here. Um, you know, one of the areas in the game which I have very little complaints. So. I think Patrick wants to talk about the RPG systems next. Um, there isn't much here. It's quite simple and straightforward. And then we can get into, you know, more about the tactical battles. So where did you want to begin with that, Pat? So broadly speaking, there are two uh, RPG systems here. The first is that your characters uh, gain XP and level up. And the second is that as you use weapons, you gain levels on the weapons for that character. So the more you use the weapon, the more you gain experience for those weapons, and they go all the way up to level 10. Um, I want to start with the specifically RPG progression and as your characters level up, because James, I think this is some of the wonkiest, strangest RPG progression in any game I've played in my entire life. There are only five statistics that you can choose to increase as you play through the game, and it's like they put 15 statistics in a bag, shook them up, shook them up, and picked out five at random. We're going to be, yes, these are going to be the five statistics that we're going to use to represent character progression. I think it ends up being bad, but it's more it's more weird than bad, to be honest. Yeah, so the five stats that you can level up are HP, luck, which is crit chance basically. Chance to counterattack, accuracy, and calmness, which, you know, reduces the chance for you to panic during battle. Now, you don't get a lot. It's a bit weird. So, for example, a character will start at level 1 with 120 HP, and every level you kind of get, you might get 5 HP, uh, which isn't doesn't feel like a lot. You might get 5 percent accuracy and every character starts at about 86 accuracy and at the end of the game everyone had 100 percent on my team and mm. then i think the next the after you've maxed out accuracy which to me is the smart thing to do um the next two choices are between crit chance and counterattack, which to me depended on the character with my characters i sent into the fray i usually leveled up counterattack because it's effectively a free turn um especially if they're holding a melee weapon so it's a free turn that doesn't use ammo so that's like super efficient resource wise so i went with that uh calmness i actually think is a trap and i think you should never level it up because when you panic your character just you know, they don't shoot very accurately, but they get, like, double damaged almost to their melee attacks, which... Did, did you know you can decrease this stat, James, on level ups? Can you really? Yeah, you can, yeah. I didn't... Oh, man, I would have done that. Like, I would have 100% done that and made, like, a little berserker character. That would have yeah, been fun, high, actually. High accuracy offsets the accuracy penalty you get. And I don't think melee attacks can miss. I think they have a 100% hit chance. Right, okay. Okay, so actually maybe there is a bit of variety with character creation that you can do with it, if that's the case then uh, there really isn't <laughs> you could do a playthrough with like a like a berserker kind of character i think that could be fun i i agree you could decrease calmness a bit and have that character do a bit more damage but i think overall what we're getting at is that the characters don't end up playing very differently differently from one at They're all very very similar so that hp stat uh, one of your characters has literally 150 HP at the start of the game. 
and you can increase it by five points on a level up, that is a 2.5% increase. It's it's ridiculous. It, it's it's so little. And what's more, the nature of the fights is that characters will not take the they won't lose 150 health. It's not that the fights aren't like that where characters have a realistic chance of dying. The strain on your character's health comes from the long-term use of your healing resources. Your characters are unlikely to take 150 health, but if they take a lot of damage every fight, you might eventually run out of healing resources. So increasing a character's max health does even less than you might expect it to. Yeah, and to compound this, at the very end of the game, all my characters were level 10. So you really don't get too many level ups per character at all. So it doesn't end up feeling like a major part of the game. It's like a little part of the efficiency puzzle, if that. And ultimately, I think this could have been more interesting. I'm not upset that you can't specialize too much, because I think having a breadth of tactical options makes the game a bit more enjoyable in some ways. Um, Maybe there could have been a little more interesting things stat-wise. I, I don't think it really detracted from my game. I think you're too forgiving, James. Like, I, I agree that it doesn't actively detract from the game because it doesn't do much. It, it yeah. feels like a missed opportunity. Normally, in a tactical RPG, leveling up your characters is, like, one of the most exciting things, right? Like, it's really yeah. cool seeing the new abilities they get or their new specializations or increasing their strengths and particular aptitudes. In this, it's a yawn. Like, you literally don't care because what do you, you increase your crit chance by 5% or your counterattack by 5%? Because that's what it is. You get your accuracy up and then it's you're putting points in counterattack or luck. You do have that additional, you know, wrinkle of if you choose, you can decrease the calmness and make one of your characters a berserker kind of character. But honestly, it's so tame and non-existent. And it feels like perhaps they had a more impressive system in place but they couldn't get a balance so they ended up returning to this rudimentary system that to me may as well not even have existed i was very disappointed with this i agree with you that it's not as exciting but i actually think it might have been the correct choice to do it this way um so basically in rpgs that have massive decisions where you can make wildly different characters You kind of have to loosen the balancing a lot to account for people making bad characters somewhat. And I think that as a survival horror game, you want the balancing to be as tight as possible. And it was like, we already said that it was strained a bit by the missable like items. I think if they make the character customization wildly more involved, then the game gets even looser balance-wise, probably. And I think that probably actively detracts from the atmosphere and the kind of game they're trying to make. So, you know, you can almost argue that it's an unnecessary inclusion in some ways, or they could have had, you know, character-specific stats and leveled up based on that. But I do think that having kind of limited options is the right way to go in some ways. So, so James, I just want to point out maybe an assumption or error in your thinking, or maybe not assumption or error, but, but hear me out. What if it's okay for your game to be bricked because you made shitty decisions? Like, you say that they have to have to loosen it to the point where you know, that they they allow for the player to make mistakes. I think that it's okay for you to make mistakes and then fail the game because of that. Isn't that a reasonable perspective to have? From the point of view of making a good 
game, I kind of can agree with you, right? From the perspective of being a, a brand new tiny studio um, that doesn't have much experience, probably doesn't have much funding, it's kind of like a death sentence if you make this game that alienates a huge number of players, right? Um, so, Pathologic. like, I agree with... Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, what, that's what I kept thinking of, Pathologic. I was like... I kind of agree with you that it would make the game better if there was wild options with tight balancing, but it must be so hard to make that call. Like, and I know that's not what we're reviewing here, but yeah, like I understand, right? I don't think it's necessarily like a design mistake. What what you're saying is reasonable. It's just that I you don't necessarily, when you create the systems, have to create zero fail states. Like when I first played uh, Underrail, um, I my first character that I played for you know four to five hours, I did a build that probably wasn't very good, and I restarted the game. Is it fair to expect everyone to do that? No, but it does make your decisions more meaningful. You know, it's kind of interesting, James. This is kind of like the opposite of what we were talking about um, with ARPGs. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was saying there should be free respects. Yeah, because yeah. one of the reasons you don't want to give that a go with is because you don't want to spend like 20 hours on a character for it to not be good right mm -hmm. i think if i had to identify what the difference is it would be that playing this game and playing under rail and stuff i kind of found them more intrinsically enjoyable to play than maybe an arpg whereas with an arpg it almost feels like the build is the entire point yes um so maybe that's the point of difference but it, it yeah you're right it is it is a little bit hypocritical of me I, I do admit that but there's something that feels tangibly different about these tactics games that have more meaty gameplay portions than um typical diablo kind of games yeah i guess for me with arpgs or like at least path of exile the point of the game is the difficulty is making the character so if you can't fail at that like <laughs> where's know, the game <laughs> yeah where's the game um yeah. but yeah here i kind of agree that the the level ups are really boring um and it would have been better if they were more interesting i you know honestly every time i got a counter attack or a crit it felt good still so sure yeah i didn't hate it but yeah it could have been more um where it actually gains some points in my eyes is actually the way you earn xp in this game so you don't get i don't think you get that much extra xp for landing a killing blow on things rather characters level up by doing damage so the more damage they do the more experience they get um and there's kind of this interesting tension here where you'll get a lot of party members join the party and then leave the party. So it's always a question of like, do I want like this guy's on 10 HP? Do I want to use one of my main three guys to get the attack to secure the XP for later? Um, sometimes it's better to actually not kill enemies in one hit because you get more XP in total by getting them to one HP and then having someone else do a big hit to finish them off. Um, so there was like a lot of micromanagement that this XP system kind of incentivized, which I, you know, personally found really cathartic uh, to try and figure out how to get the most, especially when I was using like melee attacks and that kind of thing. I think um, I would have engaged with this more if leveling up felt more meaningful. As it is, yep. I didn't do any of this. I, I just didn't care too much about micromanaging the XP because the XP and level ups weren't um, didn't mean as much to me. 
Yeah, uh, and I think that's reasonable. And then the second part that you mentioned earlier is the weapons, which, you know, as a character uses a weapon, they get better with the weapon. And to me, this is where characters kind of gain an identity, because like you said, yep. what you can do is you can put a shotgun on one guy and then he becomes your shotgun guy. Um, my, my, Cole, uh, my Cole Sullivan, he had the axe, which you get early, and he became my melee dude, um, which I think Orvitz can also be that role as well. Um, I think it's probably the intended way. That's how I did it. Or Orvitz has the highest base HP, so for me it was like obvious that he would be my axe man, whereas uh, Cole O'Sullivan was my rifleman. Yeah, um, and then on my third guy I had utility, I guess, because his stats weren't that great. So... I actually like this weapon system, like, a lot. I think it could have been more impactful. Like, I think the difference in damage between, like, a level 1 and a level 10 weapon skill could have been more. Um, because something that I found really interesting, tension-wise, in your resource management was that if I play the game again and I, you know, do it in a way that I only use melee attacks for quite some time, that means that none of my characters have any weapon skill with rifles or shotguns or pistols. So when I'm forced into a situation where I have to use ranged attacks, it kind of gets a little harder because I'm doing less damage. And this, to me, kind of acts as like a balancing tool between the best and the worst players because the best players using lots of melee to save ammo will then kill things slower at, at a different point in the game whereas the people who are bad at managing their resources will still have really high weapons and so they'll end up saving ammo because each you know bullet does more damage anyway mm -hmm. and i kind of liked that a lot actually and this was you know, when I say managing, maximizing XP, it was more about maximizing the weapon skill XP than, you know, the character XP, because this system was the fun part of the RPG system for me, whereas, like you said, stat-wise, not so interesting. Yeah, I um, completely agree. I really liked this weapons leveling up system, and it was the main thing that gave the characters their identity. Um, You know, I had my guy who was like the Uzi slash flamethrower slash uh, shocker guy. I had my axe man who I eventually rounded out with the um with the iron rifle and you know also trank darts because everyone has tranks at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. And then I had Coleman who is my rifle man and I also put you know more grenades and stuff on him. And that really kind of and you know you can change it around. It's not like I was locked into yes. it and this is something I came to an understanding after playing the game for a long time. But yeah, my characters had an identity not because of their RPG stats, but because of the tools that I'd eventually, that I'd used on them over time. So the game does have a sense of identity for these characters. It just doesn't come from their intrinsic stats. It comes from their experience using the weapons and stuff, which is honestly a fine way to do it. Um, I'm on board with this system like you, James. I think I think it's well done. Yeah, I think it could have been more impactful than it is currently, probably. Uh, like, later on, I, some of the side characters, you know, hitting something with a knife, they do two damage, and with weapon 10 instead, they do, like, two damage still. Felt like there was, like, a minimum damage that they weren't getting above or something. I think it could have done more. Um, you hit, and each of these maxes out at 10, 
which probably for the best because I maxed out my melee weapons to 10 like halfway through the game because I was using them so much. You can do it like by the end of the first map. It, it doesn't take very long to get your weapons yeah. to max level, but I think that it needs to be that fast with how many weapons they throw at you. Yeah. Otherwise, you would have very few at anywhere near max level. I agree with that. Yeah, so so overall with the RPG progression, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it, it, it works fine. And in the end, you have an identity for your characters, which is the most important thing, even if the way of getting there is a little bit wonky. So James, we've got this big, big bit to jump into, which is the tactics, but I just have one minor note before we get in first that I don't want to forget. So in this game, and this is probably one of my <laughs> the just stupidest janky thing in the game. So in this game, you have some people who join your party temporarily like you'll run into them on these dangerous streets they'll join your party for a bit fight with you and then they'll move on the only thing about this is that when those characters leave your party they take everything in their inventory with them and it's gone even if they get killed it is gone it disappears into mist and in one of these instances in particular one of these characters had a bonus to healing so I had put literally every healing item in my inventory on this character. Then she completely unexpectedly leaves your party. And if you have not taken those healing items off her, they are gone. Boom. 30 healing items shimmering into dust. You just load a save, right? I did. I did just load a save. But it's it's just the funniest thing that they d don't just drop them on the ground or anything to pick, pick them up. It just takes them from you. So it, it didn't end up being like a major in inconvenience because I just had to redo a single fight. But I did think it was extremely funny how it happened. It weirds me out, this system, because I think that the intention here is that this is a way for items to leave the item economy and to kind of like reset you and stop you having too many resources. But the game has, like, you can save on the overworld at any time. So you basically, you make a save at every battle and before you go into a new room, like, every single time. And then when one of these things happens, it just means, okay, I reload my save, move my items, make a new save, go again. Uh, it's just, like, tedious busy work, the way it's implemented. And mm. I, I kind of don't mind this idea of having re economy resets, and I think maybe the game would have been better if there was some, like, mandatory you got captured thing and they took all your items and then mm. you have to... Like, something like that, I think, would have gone a long way to re-establish the tension and have this, like, sine wave of I'm struggling with resources. Okay, I have a lot. Back to I'm struggling. Back to I have a lot. And to me, that's like the ideal progression. And it get, like it gives a variety of you know decision making depending on whether you're in like a low or high state. Just want to say, James, that that captured thing is a great idea. It actually happens in Pathologic in the um in the Harrowspec scenario on day five or six. You get captured and you lose everything and you're infected <laughs> and any you know momentum you've gained from being able to game this system on the early days is suddenly reset and you're thrown back into peril and that is a fantastic suggestion for how they could have got it back on track i'm not in love with the save system to be honest some players are going to not save after every battle and try to do a bunch in a row and some people are going to reload mid-battle depending on how it's going feels like this is another thing that means resources have to be more liberal I don't know how checkpoints would work in a game like this, though. I just don't know if they would work. But like what you said about, you know, being forced to reload to recover the items is kind of weird. And I 
also didn't like that. The other problem is that the way these battles work is that if any of your characters die, it, you fail the scenario. So there's no like, you know, revive item or there's no like your character's incapacitated and you have some turns to get to them to revive them. It's just you instantly lose that battle. So you can't like, I guess, kind of somewhat fail a battle and continue onwards. I think that you have to just save after every single battle and that's the intended way to play through this game because failing means that you have to restart anyway. Yeah, also, I think it's the right choice to some degree. I think if you put revive items in this game, it becomes a bit weird because, like, how many do you get? Do they revive you with, like... I feel like if you die and get revived with, like, 10 HP or something, the tax on your resources is just insane. Making the assumption that players will take a bit of damage every battle it makes it easier to plan how much to give the player, right? Yeah, I, I think once again, we just have to look to the superior model of Resident Evil, like safe rooms, maybe not safe rooms in this instance, yeah. but if they limited your number of saves and you had to like make a decision do i save after every battle or do i use it you know if, if you're kind of forced into a situation where you're only allowed to use a save every three battles then it becomes a lot more interesting um when you screw things too. up a lot more tense yeah because you're potentially losing more progress and you have to live with your mistakes as you're moving through but without limited saves you just make a save after every battle and i i think that's fine but i do agree with you that it's not potentially as interesting as limiting your saves in, in some fashion yeah and i completely agree with that right like it removes the idea of living with consequences entirely yep. um and i think losing that in a survival horror game is pretty pretty bad like yeah it's, and, uh... and that's why it's not really a survival horror game it kind of it kind of dabbles in some some aspects of it but it never commits to that model at its heart it's still a turn-based tactics game. And speaking with tactics, I think it's about time to start talking about the battles. Well, um, let, let's have another music break, James, because I anticipate this being a fairly meaty, meaty section because this is the meat and potatoes of the game. So did you want to play your battle theme that you've selected? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm just going to go with the plain old battle theme one on the player side. I think it makes a great contrast to the museum theme. Um, I like all of the tracks. I like the there is this like swap of the music tracks between the turns. I think it does add to the game, and I really like that there are multiple battle themes. Even if I didn't consciously notice that during the game, it's super obvious in hindsight and definitely made it more enjoyable. So uh, this is Battle Theme 1. Hope you guys enjoy.
Alrighty, that was the battle theme, and now it's time to talk about the battles actually, so good timing. Um, I generally thought that these were pretty good actually. You, you have more freedom in these than I was anticipating going into the game. I think you have more freedom in Gorky 17's combat than you do in almost any turn-based tactics game that I've played, because essentially you can move your units in any order, they each get one movement and one attack or action, and you can kind of do this thing where you move, attack, move, or you can like, you can move a unit, attack with another unit, go back to the first unit, attack with it, then move it. Like, you can do your turn in absolutely any order that you want to, which gives you a huge amount of freedom and a really good ability to kite enemies around corners and save ammo, which to me, like, really added to the resource management side of things. So I was quite, you know, pleased with this, you know, approach to the turn economy. Yeah, it, it is surprising, like, just how much freedom you have, as James said. In addition to what James mentioned, you can also choose a facing for your unit at the end of their turn. So if you've, you know, shot an enemy and killed it that's you know, behind the rest of your team, you can turn around the other and face the other way because flanking and bonus backstab damage is a thing. No problem. You can turn whichever way you want. Um, and... You can do stuff like enemies will be walking at you in a straight line. You can duck out of cover, take a shot, then duck, duck back into cover completely safely. And I think that this was the system that I struggled the most with when I first started playing and what was leading to me uh, having to restart a few times. It was that the game gives you the tools to avoid most damage thrown your way. Like if you're playing this game optimally, you can do a tremendous amount of damage avoidance and be effectively kind of plucking away at enemies if you're making the right tactical decisions. When you first start playing this, you're probably a bit more loosey-goosey. You're less familiar with enemies' attacks and what they're capable of. Um, but once you get the hang of it, you you can do a lot to avoid enemy damage. And this is even without the crowd control tools that get introduced later in the game. Yeah, and I don't know if this occurred to you either, but to me this kind of playstyle sort of fit in with the story almost. Like, I'd imagine these trained NATO soldiers to have this kind of risk aversion tact approach to battles where they're trying to minimize mm -hmm. their losses, which, you know, to me makes a lot more sense than a lot of the turn-based tactics games out there, which are very... They focus on opportunity cost, where like moving towards an enemy locks you into doing that, um, and you have to suffer the consequences. And I think you can build your game either way, and both are kind of interesting in their own way. And I'm glad that Gorky17, you know, did it this way that we don't see too often, because it kind of makes it stand out from its peers, right? There's a vulnerability to your soldiers, right? Like, they they take a lot of damage. Like, an enemy will easily do a quarter of their health with a single attack if you're not careful. Yep. Um, and, you know, at the time, you're very worried about your healing resources. So you're playing scared. Like, it, it, do it doesn't take long before it's throwing, like, four or five enemies against your three-person squad. And it's kind of it's kind of scary. Like, it's more about surviving than it is three heroes triumphantly doing a victory lap on your enemies. You didn't get the shotgun, but right at the start, um, there's a puzzle you can do to get a shotgun, which involves taking a plank of wood, laying it over a bridge, and then walking over it. 
Now the characters have a bit of an argument here and Orvitz does his tongue-in-cheek like little joke and Cole has enough of that and sends him over the, the rickety plank first which of course snaps and drops him into combat um, and the combat starts with him like between three scary enemies and the other two not on the map and yelling like we'll get there in a few turns so you kind of have to like height the enemies out for two turns until the reinforcements arrive and i thought that was awesome a way to blend the narrative with the the combat encounters and like you said the battle takes place in the area physically you can see mm -hmm. all of the environment around you um and i think all of the encounters were really well designed around the environment and had all sorts of you know cover and barrels and boxes for you to take advantage of yeah there are some puzzle like encounters like that one the one the, the other one that stands out to me is in the sewers um before you ascend to where the like the courtyard of the museum is you're in like an extremely narrow space your characters are basically overlapping one another and the commander is like watch your fire don't shoot one another and you have to figure out the best way to array your soul soldiers in this ridiculous narrow space where they're they're basically tripping over one another which i found interesting like if that was every battle it would be annoying as hell but as like a specific challenge it was an interesting uh tweak to the normal tactical formula yeah that one kind of annoyed me a bit because there was some logic that was broken there in order to serve the the puzzle of the gameplay which ultimately is fine but the way it plays out is the one i assume you're talking about is there are two sides of the sewers with yep. water in between and then a, a single tile narrow plank across and mm -hmm. if you're on the narrow plank you can't shoot enemies on the sides even though you have vision of them because technically there is no grid squares connecting you to them because the water doesn't have grid tiles on it so it's like there's invisible walls on both sides it's a bit it's a bit weird, but that was tactically a more interesting fight because of it, so I wasn't too upset. And I think the other thing is um, the game rapidly escalates the challenge to meet your introduction of resources because like i said you get a whole bunch of new resources this game does not screw around with giving you easy battle after easy battle it goes from one enemy to three enemies to three enemies and then two to three enemies arrive halfway through the fight and it is it feels really tough i i think one of the things i really liked is that a lot of these fights start off as ambushes with you surrounded on all sides and what you have to do is you kind of have to make an aggressive play in order to escape the ambush you have to counterattack, so you kind of have to move your forces aggressively to one side of the fight otherwise you you get overwhelmed and killed you just can't hide in the center forever although there is some abuse you can do with barrels to kind of play around with that but i, I liked the idea of using counterattacking as a as a tactical strategy to deal with these difficult situations yeah me too and it was kind of about like having a look at the move speed of each enemy and generally i would mm -hmm. move towards the high move speed enemies so that yep. the slow ones would get to me slower and then kite around in a circle once they grouped up and you can use like put fire on the floor and stuff like that one thing that i had a lot of fun abusing the shit out of um was that there was one battle that had like a square pillar in the center with four explosive barrels around it and then there was a, a small box directly south and one directly east and there were these two enemies that shot missiles um directly in front of them 
And those enemies took up nine squares each. They were like a three by three grid because they were quite big. So what I did was over the course of like 20 turns, I <laughs> moved boxes slowly towards them like one square apart so that they couldn't walk between the boxes because they were too wide. But my units could duck between the boxes, shoot, and then back behind them. And so I ended up not taking damage that fight because I spent <laughs> like 30 turns setting up like a trap for them. It was so funny. I think in general, that decision to make most of the enemies occupy more than one tile worth of space is one of the quietly brilliant things about this game because it adds a tremendous amount of depth in terms of manipulating your terrain. And it also makes it more much 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 easier to kind of perform flanks because if these enemies all occupied one space like your soldiers it'd be a lot more difficult to get surrounds on them and effectively i guess make the decision to kill these enemies as it is once you make the decision to move in and flank an enemy you can almost always do it because they occupy more space um once again it's such a little thing but i feel like this game would be much worse if every enemy just occupied a single tile like is the case in many many tactics games yeah i agree with that and the game does a really good job i think of setting up its battles in a puzzle-like way um such that you could probably do a lot of them and i did without taking any damage if you like mm -hmm. do it right um or you practice it like i think that was really cool to see and i think that one thing you know these battles are set they're not random encounters so they all get individual attention to detail to make them really good and memorable. I think that absolutely was a highlight of the battles for me, was the design in a lot of them. And the inclusion of flanking and backstabs like works in tandem with the idea of resource conservation because, you know, it's more efficient to hit them in the back. So you save like a shot every time you kill something with a stronger backstab or something. It changes the way you try to approach enemies and the same, you know, with the size of the enemies. There's like lots of little details here interlinking that just makes it really engaging from start to finish. Yeah, the an another big thing of note is I think you were calling them weapon templates, right, James? Yeah. Where, where different weapons have different... Um ways of attacking with enemies and i always view it as like chess pieces so for example the rifle can shoot as a queen it can shoot in a cross space or diagonally this is all square base grid whereas the pistol can only shoot in a cross it doesn't have any diagonal shooting this isn't like the new XCOM games where you know you set overwatch and they can just shoot in a cone there are very specific angles of attack each weapon can use yeah, and like the SMG, it shoots in four directions only also, like front, back and sides, but on the square you choose it also hits the tiles like directly left and right, so it's almost like the knight piece, uh, if we're using the chess analogy, which I thought was kind of cool. The flamethrower hits in like one square in front of you and then it spreads out in a cone to hit three squares. All of this together, you know, the different enemy sizes, the fact that you have different ammo counts based on how well you're conserving certain resources to me made every single turn like an interesting little puzzle of which weapon is the most optimal one to use because sometimes you'd be running out of shotgun ammo so even though it was the best in the situation I didn't want to use it in case I really needed it at some point. The same comes into play with your limited grenades and molotov cocktails and all the tools you have access to of which there are a lot. The resources, the templates, the fact that you have damage fall off, the fact that melee weapons are more efficient, 
every single turn I strongly considered which weapon to use, basically. It goes deeper, James, because it's not just the decisions you have, it's gaining an understanding of the enemies and how they operate. Yes. Some enemies have AoE attacks, some enemies have trank attacks, um, and these enemies, at times, they're stupid as anything, but at other times they'll identify, if I shoot this rocket between these two players, it will hit both of them. So then you have to start thinking about spreading your team out so that an AoE attack can't hit both at once, but maybe in spreading them out, you've missed the opportunity to do damage to another enemy, so you have to juggle those things. A lot of getting better at this game isn't just understanding how to maximize your team's firepower, it's learning how to mitigate the options of the enemy AI. And I think that that's just as important as um, getting good at moving around your team and taking shots. Yeah, I agree with all that. Now, I also want to talk a bit about crowd control, um, mm -hmm. because I think this is a huge part of the game and something that probably separates it from most turn-based tactics games that I've played, is that this, the crowd control of this game is extremely powerful and quite plentiful. For example, early on I mentioned you get the taser, which is a melee range three-turn stun um, that has a like a three turn cooldown and one hundred percent success rate. Yeah. it's not like seventy percent of the time it works. It always works. It's reliable. Yeah, so something like I mentioned, you will do is lure enemies over, stun them, and then kill them one by one. Um, there are enemies in the game that have immunities to certain crowd control because there's not just tranquilize, which is what the taser and the trank darts do. There's also freeze. Um, you can set things on fire. Um, some things are immune to certain kinds of damage, like you get energy weapons later on, and some things are immune to that. And whenever something is immune, they're always completely immune, and a little icon appears under their health bar permanently, like every time you encounter that enemy to remind you, which I thought was awesome. Crowd control in this game in a sense feels very overpowered. There are a lot of encounters in the game where there's like a single boss enemy but they're not immune to stun, and if you have two tasers, you basically get to stun lock the boss permanently. It's so funny. And spend like <laughs> 10 minutes hitting it with your fists to save ammo. Like, that happened a lot, not just like once. That was literally how I beat the final boss. The final boss has no adds, no extra enemies, is not immune to stun, so I don't know what the final boss's moveset is, because it, it didn't get a turn, which I thought was like such a wet fart of a way to end the game. I hated it. Um, it's so bad. Yeah, it's terrible, and I was okay with a couple of the enemies being abusable like this, but there are too many fights in the game that are solved with crowd control far too easily, I think. Yeah, by the end of the game, you have three trank pistols two tasers and two liquid nitrogen guns which act as stuns so it's just ridiculous you have so much cc you spend more of your turn ccing than actually doing damage but that's the safest way to get through these fights to use them at every available opportunity um i want to highlight one fight which was the one at the end of the museum where both the boss and the two ads that came with it had trank immunity and i was like oh shit i'm actually gonna have to do a real fight <laughs> i'm actually gonna have to think a lot more about how I do it. Like you said, if they'd made bosses uh, immune to being tranquilized and then thrown a whole lot of ads in there, these boss fights would have been a lot more reasonable, and that's what you'd expect most games to do. But yeah, you end up having too many CC options for the 
amount of enemies on the screen. And I think that they just needed to not give you the second taser and not give you the second nitrogen rifle and maybe only give you one trank pistol. And, and if they'd done that, then they still would have been powerful tools, but you wouldn't be able to chain CC half the monsters on the screen. See, my biggest problem is that you can. I think the taser should have had a one battle cooldown, not a three turn cooldown. Like, mm. if I can use. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. For me, with turn based tactics, like turn based combat games, and I'll talk about, like, not just grid tactics, but like JRPGs or other turn based games. Um, the way I like CC being implemented is that I don't like it when all bosses are immune to all CC. I think that's boring. But what I do like is when you know they can probably be stunned maybe once in the fight and you need to figure out when the best time to stun them is because that's like an interesting little puzzle it's hard when these enemies don't really have like big move sets they'll usually have like one attack but it would be more interesting to me if the bosses had something that you needed to interrupt with the stun so you needed to save it for like halfway through the fight or something like that i think the biggest problem is that there is no kind of stacking resistance whatsoever. Now, I don't mind that this game minimizes randomness. You know, there's mischance and there's crits and stuff like that, but generally CC always works, and I was mostly happy with that. It feels more predictable, and I like that. But most RPG bosses, if you can stun them, they gain some kind of stacking resistance to the stun, so you can't do it again. That is Mm -hmm. not present here at all, So if you have two stuns and one enemy, even, you know, the last boss, you can stun it like 20 times in a row, like with a 100% chance. It's it's ridiculous. There needed to be a decision making in the boss fights of when you use these things. And there was just was not in this game. And I think it actively makes the boss fights way more boring than fighting lots of regular enemies. Yeah, actually, Underrail does this exactly. After you have stunned an enemy, they gain immunity to being stunned for two turns. So I agree with you, James. Everything you said is fantastic. I think the once per turn suggestion is a good idea. I think limited stun immunity. Oh, sorry. Yeah, once per turn is a quote. (laughs) Yeah, once per battle or... um, like you said, enemies gaining stun immunity for a status, giving them stun immunity after they've been stunned, also a good idea. The lack of this makes the um the end game a bit of a face roll. Yes. The one fight that was a bit interesting after that museum fight, which still wasn't difficult, you just took some damage along the way, was the invisible enemies, where I yes. used a slightly different strategy to um what I did the entire game. I got some good use out of the timed bombs and the AoE weapons, like using the flamethrower, and I actually failed. Well, it didn't fail, but I took... I did the first flight so poorly that I restarted it to try and do some different stuff. Did did you enjoy that fight? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. They were I, I was okay with those enemies being immune to like literally everything because they didn't have much HP and the battle mm-hmm. was about figuring out what tile they was on. Because in the whole game you can already just attack a tile even if there's nothing there. So not being able to see the enemies unless they're moving was kind of a fun gimmick. Like, I thought that, you know, it was one of the cooler ones in the game. I wish they'd implemented one or two of those in the 
in like the mixed enemy fights yeah like that would have been cool like just having one or two of them i think would have had a lot of dynamic challenge to the fights that at that point were kind of getting kind of routine the the other problem with the cc stuff is that while the fights were a bit interesting towards the start once you'd taken out a couple of monsters your cc just completely overwhelmed like the last two or three monsters that were left alive to the point where it was just completely trivial so the last couple of enemies you were killing was very much a cleanup crew. It wasn't, by that point of time, the tension had completely evaporated. I feel like a good quarter of my time in the battles was melee attacking a stunlocked enemy with no threat <laughs> yeah. to my characters whatsoever, which took away from the tension a lot. Like it was, I would have rather avoided damage through good kiting and positioning. Being able to stunlock things so consistently it kind of makes the enemies seem weak and non-threatening, especially the bosses. This is all to say, I think the game is kind of like divided into roughly three stages in terms of like the tactics. At the very start, resources are extremely limited. You've got basically no CC and it's all about mastering the basic tactical movements and mitigating damage i think the game's quite good at this stage i also think it's good into the mid game where you have limited cc where you have like one taser and one strength pistol you're still getting kind of some new weapons and stuff and you're still and you get to combine trying to use the cc to over you know combat these overwhelming odds and with all the tactical stuff you've learned up to that point by the end game i don't think this is a very good tactical game in terms of it challenging you there's still some fun to be have had in terms of the new tools that you get that we were talking about but at this point it really does feel like you're doing a victory lap there are a couple of tough battles but they feel like they're completely mitigated by these powerful aoe attacks you get the the one i'm thinking of is when you fight against the soldiers james yeah all the soldier fights and the fight against the two the the enemies that put mines on the ground those two fights were still interesting in the late game to me because like most enemies ranged attacks are kind of limited but when you fight against like 10 soldiers with rifles it's like still a bit scary because they can attack you diagonally (laughs) yeah yeah and they're really good and they have a lot of movement so i think there was still challenge in the late game it's just that the normal monsters became a bit of a joke later on to some degree yeah i I guess i enjoyed this game a lot more with the early to mid game fights because you also had the resource management being a bigger deal there as well and I feel like, yeah, towards the end of the game, it became a little little too easy. I, not not so easy as, like you said, it's not like it was trivial. It's just I didn't feel like I was being challenged. Uh, I was doing a lot of face tanking of damage because by this point I had so many healing items that I could be like, yeah, I'll take some damage. It doesn't matter. I think a lot of this is personal preference, actually, because I know like with RPGs in general, like I love the start of all of them where I have nothing and it's a struggle. And I know Mm. so many people who hate the start and love the end when they're super overpowered and have... Idiots, James. Idiots. (laughs) The the most fun part of Divinity Original Sin 2 is when you're having to scrape every single piece of shitty gear together. I agree. I want the whole game to be a misery simulator, basically. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't... To be honest, I don't think we're the majority even actually in this regard. So Fuck um, the majority, James. (laughs) They're wrong. We're right. So, you know, take it depends on what kind of play you are, if you're considering playing on this game in that respect. I, I guess the other thing I'd mention is that I think this is, this, is a, this is a point worth taking into account. When you first start playing this game, 
if you are and like if you've played other tactics games you are going to struggle a bit you know you're you're probably going to fail like i did i don't know if james had as many troubles as i did but i definitely had to restart the games a few times i didn't mind this part of playing this game part of playing any new game is that you have to struggle a little bit to understand how these systems work but it's not like i spend hours and hours and hours struggling with it it just took me a little while to get a handle on how this specific game worked um, I enjoyed that process and I think that that's something that you have to accept at some base level if you're going to play and enjoy Gorky 17. This is not your standard tactics game. It's got enough quirks and strangeness about it that you're going to have to spend some time experimenting and playing and probably failing before you come to grips with what it's demanding of you. So uh, just want to bring that up. I, I do think that the new player experience here is, is fairly hostile and, and difficult to uh, to get to grips with, but it pretty rapidly turns around well it sounds like we're about ready to wrap up then with impressions um patrick what did you think of gorky 17 um gorky 17 is a good to great game i had a lot of fun with it i think that it has a wonderful sense of atmosphere and sense of place i really enjoyed exploring its world i think its rpg progression systems are a little wonky mainly the leveling up but the weapons leveling up gives your characters enough of a sense of identity that it doesn't matter too much and i think the tactical battles in the first two thirds of the game are wonderfully engaging and everything it does with um with all of the little nuances in the system are a lot of fun to learn i will say it fails for me in terms of its survival horror aspects i think that the resource management early on in the game is fantastic but it never fully commits to the idea and that has flow-on effects for the entire tactical experience as well where towards the end of the game it really isn't challenging in any meaningful way uh it's not trivial but it, it just never reaches the heights of those first two thirds where i was struggling and weighing up every decision because i was so powerful that most decisions led to victory anyway all that said it's a really good game it's really short and it's got no it's got no wasted content it, the game is like less than 10 hours long but no hour of that feels like grind or padding it's all meaningful and you can see that every time you open a box and get a loot you can see that in the way that it immediately ramps up to engaging encounters by like literally the second or third encounter and it never stops that that pacing from start to finish so gorky 17 is a really good game you, you should play it if you've got any interest in tactics there is some wonkiness and balance issues but on the whole it's it's a really good game and i really enjoyed playing it over the past fortnight I really liked Gorky 17. I thought this was a fantastic game from start to finish with, you know, the start being a bit better in terms of resource management. But on the whole, like, I just love games with structures like this. I love going from the overworld, doing like little bits of exploration, you know, doing some getting cool items, talking to NPCs, and then being loaded into, you know, strategic battles that where every single turn is an interesting decision. This game has lots of like really fun decision making. Like even when the game gets a bit easier, you can still like focus on making the best plays possible. And that's uh, really enjoyable from start to finish, I thought. I really liked the massive weapon variety available in this game with each of their damage templates, um, ranges, and, you know, effective uses. It was really fun figuring out 
what weapon to use when and on what enemies. Um, the story's not fantastic. I thought it was good. There is a plot twist at the end of the game that I quite liked. And I think that on the whole, you know, every, all the systems kind of work together to make a really cohesive uh, atmospheric affair. There are issues with it. The, I wish the resource management was a bit tighter. I wish the stat system was more interesting and more meaningful. I wish they had done a better job with the characterization. But on the whole, like I think Gorky 17 is an excellent game, one that you can pick up extremely cheaply and one that won't take up too much of your time. So I wholeheartedly recommend this one. It's a good game. Less jank than I was expecting. <laughs> I thought this would be an incredibly janky game. Instead, the jank was mostly uh, mostly around the edges. So thank you so much to everyone for listening to us talk about Gorky 17. We are the Retrospectors podcast. We play classic games and then gab on about them. Um, you can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got all 89 of our episodes there. So please, if you want to listen to more discussion, there is an endless amount there. Also a bunch of articles that James and I have written about old games and news. So plenty of good stuff there for you to have a squiz at. It's got links to all of our social media stuff, most importantly of which is our discord server which is where we do most of our community interaction or we take game recommendations and we talk about old games and new um we'd love if you would drop by that's the best way you can support us by jumping in discord and joining the conversation let us know what you think about the show or make a recommendation for what we are to play next and on that topic james what are we playing next i'm still not 100 percent certain on what you are going to choose i heard a couple of uh couple of ideas but uh, um you're you're about to surprise me i'm sure with some brilliant masterpiece of a game probably not i i was thinking about it and we were talking about it and i don't have any strong inclinations one way or another towards what we play currently um so i was like oh we may as well go back and do a sequel episode while you know i don't want to play something else System instead two? so we're gonna go that's a sequel uh it has an s and a two in the name so <laughs> yes we're gonna be playing sly 2 um been a while since we played the best genre of all time 3d platformer but um it's it's good that we return to form after all of these terrible stealth games in between. We're literally playing a stealth platformer, so I don't know what you're talking about. Although, <laughs> to be fair, when we did Sly Cooper 1, I almost felt like I was tricked because the stealth aspects were very <laughs> light and the 3D platforming aspects were very strong. Actually, yeah, you're right. You did want to play another stealth game, so I'll pick it for you. Here we go. We can play Sly I, I do know that people <laughs> think this was like the best game in the trilogy, a lot better right? Than the first. Yeah, pe people yeah. love th this game. So I, I was was pretty mixed on the first one i thought it had some good elements but overall i was it felt kind of boring to me as a 3d platformer kind of unremarkable no psychonauts yeah it, it did have That's that good sure. boss battle against the crocodile which i liked which was uh just was at space station 13 is that no what's the name space channel 5 it's space station <laughs> space station 13. it had the space channel 5 uh mini game against the boss which i liked but um yeah, I'm I'm hoping this one is much better, but hopefully it's much better enough that it gets a passing grade. I think it'll be good. I remember playing this one, you know, I rented it out once and enjoyed it a lot, so I'm expecting it to be quite good. Uh, I expect it to be an easy game to play through, but I'm kind of I'm up for the relaxation. 3D platformers are gross, <laughs> so I'll I'll do my best to put up with it. I'm sure it'll be fine. And then we can do Sly 3 the weekend. <laughs> Alrighty, well, I guess we will see you in a fortnight for Sly Cooper 2. See you then. See you then, guys. Bye.